When we go look for life in the universe, what are we looking for? Did you know your cholesterol could last for billions of years? It's a really great way to understand um, sort of the history of the microbial life on this planet, since they don't always live, leave fossils in the way that dinosaurs do. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the search for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Lindsay Hayes, and she's the Deputy Program Scientist for the Astrobiology Program at NASA. Welcome, Lindsay. Jim, I'm really glad to be here. You know, one of the things that uh, the astrobiologists do is they really look at the history of life here on Earth. Now, why is that important for us to do that and instead of just go looking for life beyond our Earth? It's our one example of life um, that we know of. And so it's really important that we understand not just um, what life looks like on this planet today, because it's our only example, um, but also what life looked like in the past on this planet. How we got to this point um, is, is a really important way, it's a really important thing to understand how mass extinction events or mass radiation events, where you go from a couple different families to, to many, many groups of families, how those kinds of things happen on, on this planet or on any planet. Um, and, and the other really interesting thing about, about looking at the history of life on Earth is that past Earths are almost entirely different um, environments. You know, there was a time on this planet where there was almost no oxygen on the surface of the planet. And there was, it was still teeming with life. So what is a planet that have no ox that has no oxygen? What does that look like? What does the life on that planet look like? And by studying the past Earth and the the history of life on Earth, you can get an idea for some other sort of states of habitability um, that we don't see today, but that we might be able to see as we're looking to bodies within our solar system or extrasolar planets. Um, you know, past Earth can be the clue, can be, it can teach us about not just this planet, but a lot of other places as well. Well, let's see, about 3.8 billion years ago, we believe uh, life really started here on Earth. And it was really simple for long periods of time. And then it got to be more complex, meaning cells were, were uh, uh, getting together and forming much more complex structures. What happened that made that change? Do we know? Well, I mean, one of the things, so, so one of the interesting things about studying the history of life is we can only sort of see the winners, right? We see today um, how things worked. And so when you look back, when you look back at Earth, when you look back at Earth's history, you can understand sort of how we got to where we are. Um, but but we don't necessarily know all of the different the different things that were acting on those that life, all of the different factors. But, but one of the things that we always see as a way to sort of drive new innovation and drive new uh, new evolution is competition. Things for resources, you know, places where you can get energy, um, you know, understandably the places where energy is easy to get and abundant, those are places that life probably started and probably started inhabiting very quickly. And as those, those areas, those niches filled out, you would expect evolution um, to become more complex uh, in, in, in a way to get our energy that's harder to get at. So, you know, we think about 
about uh, the the abundance of life on this planet today that uses sunlight for energy. But that's actually a relatively difficult thing to evolve. It's much more easy to get chemical energy. And then the ability to evolving the ability to create what we call photosystems, uh, complexes of proteins and, and metals and things that allow you to take energy from sunlight. That's just one stage of complexity as you evolve. The next thing is, is you know, multicellularity. And, and as you were sort of alluding to, uh, more complex structures, that sort of thing. It's really hard to try and understand exactly what drove those evolutions. But actually, there's a recent study that came out that showed that predation, um, single cells that eat other cells can actually drive those, those prey cells to create more complex envi- uh, to create more complex structures to become multicellularity as a way to sort of protect themselves from predation. Think animals living in herds makes it harder for any one animal to get attacked. Early on, when plants came on this earth, what kind of plants do you think started here first? Well, so we're definitely talking early on, we're talking uh, single-celled organisms. So cyanobacteria, um, these used to be called blue-green algae, but as we as we have understood them better, we recognize that they're not algae at all. They're in fact um, a single-celled organism uh, called cyanobacteria. They live in communities, but you probably know them as chloroplasts. So at some point in, in, the, couple, in the past couple billion years, uh, a different organism ate uh, cyanobacteria. It became incorporated in the cell. It wasn't digested for some reason or another and became a chloroplast. And that's where we start to see algae and all those kinds of things. And then algae evolve into bigger things um, as life, you know, first water plants and things like that. Um, and then plants on land have only been around for the past couple hundred million years. Um, so, so early on, we're definitely talking about not even algae, but even single cell bacteria that are photosynthetic. With the evolution of photosynthesis, we sort of see two stages, right? The first stage in the evolution of photosynthesis is just the ability to take in light at all. Um, but then as, as those photosystems, those, those complexes became more complicated and started grouping together, a group of organisms that are probably like modern day cyanobacteria or, you know, the, the ancient historical versions of them um, evolved the ability to split water. And in the process, they started creating oxygen, which fundamentally changed the chemical uh, composition of the atmosphere and, and sort of the surface environments on Earth. And the really neat thing about oxygen is that it allows you, it's a really high energy molecule, um, and it allows you to break down more complex compounds when you can consume oxygen and sugars, you can sort of get the full amount of energy out of those sugars. And that allowed things to become more complex because they can sort of get more energy out of the food they are eating. So, you know, those processes and, and a sort of um, a, a whole series of evolutionary steps allowed us to take the take the steps from being sort of simple life to this very multiple complex organisms we see today, all of the different kinds of single celled through through, you know, elephants and whales and these huge, enormous things that we see on our planet. Well, you know, can you tell us about some of the places in the solar system that you're excited about for looking for life? Ooh, okay. Um, do I have to stay within the solar system? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, beyond Earth. Where where would you go look for life beyond Earth? 
So of course, there's a lot of interesting things outside of the solar system, right? Whatever you can imagine, there's some, there's some probably some really cool planet um, outside of the solar system that's like that. But I, I like thinking about our solar system because it's it's a much more approachable <laughs> environment. Um, you know, these are places that even even in the farthest reaches of the solar system, um, you know, we've been to Pluto. It took us a long time to get to Pluto, but um, but but we've been there, and you know, we've been able to do that. So I'd say that there are a lot of of places that I find really interesting in the solar system. Um, and most of them are sort of in the subsurface, right? Deep under the surface of Mars, in the rocks, under the oceans and the moons and the outer solar system. You know, the things that I'm most excited about in our quest to look for life, um, you know, is to understand what makes an environment habitable on a planet or, um, or on some other body in the solar system, a moon or something that's potentially less habitable as a whole than the Earth. Well, you already mentioned a couple of really great places. You know, you mentioned Mars and you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the icy moons. Uh, if life is in both of those places, would they be similar or how different would they would they be, do you think? You'd have to see different evolution, different systems uh, that would have evolved to live in those different places. Um, you know, when we look at our planet here, extremophiles are very different depending on the environments that you look at. Um, you know, when you look at things that live in deep sea environments, like the kinds of environments that we imagine we would see um, in some of the, the subsurface oceans on the outer, on the moons in the outer planets, um, you know, we see organisms that are evolved to live in high pressures and high temperatures. Um, you know, when we see things that live in rocks on the earth, we see things that are evolved to take advantage of tiny little bits of energy, um, you know, over very long lifetimes. Um, you know, those things on the earth, you know, eat hydrogen and other things like that that come from radioactive decay. Um, but those two, those two organisms uh, have evolved into sort of very different types of systems. And so I would imagine that you would, you would expect to see different kinds of lives if you're looking at different environments. Well, you know, we know a lot about Mars, and I, and I think we could say there's probably not life on the surface of Mars. At least we haven't found it yet. Uh, but that gives us the opportunity to to think about life below the surface. Um, it, it, would we yeah. rule out life below the surface on Mars? You know, I think that that's <laughs> when I rule out life on the surface on this in the subsurface below Mars. You know, any time that we look for life. Um, any, almost any place that we've looked on this planet for life, we have found it, which tells me that life is incredibly robust. Um, you know, it, it stays wherever there is energy to be had. So I think that if there was ever life on Mars, um, it may be somewhere on the surface today. And I think ruling out life, um, you know, I'm an astrobiologist, so I never want to rule out the potential for there to be life somewhere. Um, I think that, um, you know, life is clearly not abundant on the surface today of Mars today. And so I think looking in the subsurface is exactly the kind of thing that we should be doing. But do we know enough about Mars to rule it out? Or is it still a possibility that there may be life on Mars below the surface? I think that there's there are enough tantalizing hints that I think it would be interesting uh, to go and look for life in the subsurface. I definitely don't think there's anything that we've been able to rule out with regards to, to Mars at this point, other than, like you said, the fact that there's life is clearly not abundant on the surface of Mars today. So, you know, so where could it be and what would it look like? Those are really interesting questions. Well, what are some of the signatures of life that we should be looking for then? Well, um, on Mars or, or yeah, anywhere Mars else in the solar system. Let's start with yeah, Mars. Yeah, so 
<laughs> um, you know, things like chemical fossils, you know, the, the simplest things really are looking for evidence of disequilibria. I mean, fundamentally, life takes advantage of a place where there's energy to be exploited and, and takes that energy for itself. So something that indicates that that there's been some kind of chemical reaction that's going on there. Um, I, I am an organic chemist, so I always want to look for organic fossils, things like lipids or amino acids, things like that. Um, microfossils, you know, um, you might see traces of single cell organisms, or sometimes those single cell organisms live in sort of communities um, and create macrofossils. On Earth, we see these things as stromatolites or evidence of sort of sticky microbial mats that have gotten broken up, um, you know, in storms and things like that and redeposited and indicate that there was something there that was doing something. There's a whole range of biosignatures and, and some things may be more you may be more likely to see them on Mars. Some things you may be more likely to see them, um, you know, in in a subsurface ocean or in a plume from a subsurface ocean, those kinds of things. Well, you know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, the building blocks of life uh, for a while and, and everyone knows about amino acids. But um, you mentioned one thing, lipids. And, and so what are lipids and how would we look for a lipid as a biosignature? Sure. Well, so so I like to think about lipids in this way, and that is if you are very, very, very lucky, the parts of you that may last for billions of years that says that you were here is actually your cholesterol, right? Um, lipids are the things that make up our cell, cell membranes, right? They're the things that sort of make up the envelopes around our cells. Um, and unlike DNA, you know, that would say this was Jim Green, right, who was here, um, these lipids are produced by sort of whole families of organisms. They can tell you this was a human or this was a mammal who was living here, but they last a really, really long time. These are basically oils. One reason that we can find oil is that it can be preserved for millions or even billions of years on this planet. Um, and these hydrocarbons, um, they last for a really, really long time. Um, they can be a really good record of the deep past and, and different families make different compounds that allow us to say, hey, look, something that was making that compound lived here at this time in the past. And you can see um, whole groups of lipids. That's a really great way to understand um, sort of the history of the microbial life on this planet, since they don't always live, leave fossils in the way that dinosaurs do. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, and most of history of Earth, you know, uh, animals didn't have a skeletal structure. You know, they, they, they were much more cellular in nature. So as you say, we're going to have to find the right pools of chemicals uh, to be able to see that these are markers of ancient life. Well, what kind of instruments or technologies do we really need to develop to be able to make those kind of measurements? Well, um, as I said, you know, I'm partial to lipids. They last for really long periods of time. So I'm always interested in things like a spectrometer. What is a spectrometer and how would it work? So there's a couple different ways. A spectrometer ultimately is something that is looking for um, for wavelengths of light, right? And so we can think about a spectrometer um, as a way to look at uh, how different compounds, or you know, what 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 different compounds there are um, in a in a gas or something like that. Uh, we also have things like mass spectrometers, uh, which help us look at the ranges of mass that we get out of um, out of compounds that we have broken down. Um, and these are all things that 
allow us to sort of uh, do an inventory of the chemicals that we are looking at in a place. You can detect other compounds as well with the spectrometer, um, like amino acids, like you were talking about, or make atmospheric measurements, depending on sort of how you set it up. Um, some people have argued for a camera as a way to sort of detect life. I mean, this would be, this could be a very hard thing to do. If we send a camera, say, to a subsurface ocean, you have to do a lot of filtering of seawater to find microbes and stuff like that. And how would you even know what you were looking at? But the stuff that I'm most interested in looking at is in the deep subsurface. So, you know, instruments, you know, we have some idea of what kinds of instruments we may want to create. But but really the technologies, I think, that are important are about how to get into that subsurface, how to get below the ice, how to get samples of stuff below the ice, how to get below the rocky surface of Mars. Um, you know, you have to think about... You have to think about getting sampling systems that are robust. Remember, we have no mechanics in outer space. You have to make sure that it's going to be able to do what it's going to be able to do and you can't fix it. Um, and, you know, and also how to keep them very clean. Um, we don't want to run the risk of bringing Earth life with us, detecting it and saying we found life. But really what we found was ourselves. Um, so I think that those are some really interesting technologies that when we combine them with the instrument development that some of our great teams are doing can get us to not just being able to measure things, but getting the samples that we may want to measure. You know, it just occurred to me as you're talking about it, getting below the surface, if you go to Mars, there are some really deep craters that mm -hmm. really get below the surface. I mean, they, they, mm -hmm. they can be uh, hundreds of meters below the surface. Maybe that's where we should land and begin our interrogation because it, it, it's down already at a low level. The rocks can always tell a story, right? We use the rocks on this planet to tell a story about the deep past. Um, the, the most interesting thing I think about the history of Mars is that the rocks on the surface of Mars are on the whole even older or significantly older than the rocks on the surface of the Earth. And so they also tell the history of Mars um, right there on the surface. And, and because they've got craters and because they've got other things like that, that's exactly, that's your window into those deep subsurface rocks and a really cool way to look for those either those these chemical fossils lipids those kinds of things i was talking about or microfossils um you know is as as long as you can find rocks that sort of are sedimentary they're unaltered um they can they they may have these fossils if those fossils exist those would be the right places to look for them yeah now the one thing about mars as you mentioned is uh, the surface rocks are older and it's because mm -hmm. the rocks here on earth have gone through a whole evolutionary stage of being modified by plate tectonics and and wind yep. and weather and ocean uh, and so we don't have any of the old rocks on the surface anymore it's really kind of turned over there's a really active question within, you know, the habitability community, which is, do we need plate tectonics for, for life to live on the surface and to be abundant on the surface? So understanding, you know, not just local environments for habitability, but global environments for habitability. Plate tectonics are great because they keep, they sort of keep refreshing your stores of chemical energy. You know, they turn it over, they reprocess it, they repackage it um, into new, into new pieces that, that microbes or, you know, or larger organisms can eat. But at the same time, they destroy all of those old signals. They destroy all of those old signs. And so, you know, it's a it's a twofold kind of thing. You know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the rocks and, and the history of the old life? Or are you looking for something that's active today? So indeed, if life started on Mars at the same time it did Earth, then the way we could find how life started originally would be on Mars. Yeah. What kind of studying and training does someone have to have to become an astrobiologist? 
So astrobiology requires that we think about big questions. And so to answer big questions, you have to get people who have a lot of different kinds of backgrounds. So, um, you know, the study and training, you have to be, do, you have to be very interested in science. You have to be very interested in engineering, that kind of thing. Um, but, but really you've got to be thinking about how to work with other fields. So I trained as a, a geologist and a biologist, um, but I also took a lot of chemistry classes. I took some classes classes on uh, planetary science and understanding how planets form and what makes a planet habitable. Um, you know, it, it's really um, the, the kind of training that you need is, is really focused on teaching people to have an open mind. Um, in astrobiology, you have to know that no matter how good you are in your field, the kind of questions we want to answer are the big questions. And so you're going to need to be able to work with other people to figure those out. Um, so, so, you know, big, lots of science, but also, but also learning how to, to work with other people. Well, Lindsay, you know, I always love to ask my guests to tell me about what happened in their past, what person, place <laughs> or activity that got them so excited about being a scientist that, uh, I call that a gravity assist. So Lindsay, <laughs> what was your gravity assist? Ooh, oh, can I get two? Can I be like some rocket going into the outer solar system? Needs a couple of swing bys to get me where I am. Um, <laughs> well, the first thing is, um, you know, sort of a, a quirk of fate. I actually grew up in a little town called Jupiter, Florida. Um, and uh, Jupiter is is cool, not just because, of course, it's named after the coolest planet in the solar system, um, but because uh, it's it's close enough to uh, Cape Canaveral, um, to the Kennedy Space Center, that you, when, when I was growing up, uh, you could see the space shuttle launches. Now, you couldn't see the rocket, of course. You could just see the trails and the, and the lights from the engines, but you could see them. And so, you know, a couple times a year, if you knew when to look and you knew where to look, you could see people launching into space on, on a regular basis. And that was just a really cool, uh, a thing to grow up in the, the, the shadow of. Um, the other thing is I had a fantastic teacher in high school. Um, I was not necessarily a great student in elementary school and, and in middle school, things started to sort of pique my interest. But uh, my high school biology teacher uh, really, really inspired me to get into science. She's an amazing woman, very smart. She actually got her PhD while teaching high school um, in biology and made the material really fascinating in a way that I hadn't uh, been able to engage with before. Um, you know, and so, you know, she's actually now the vice principal of the school that I went to. Um, but without her, I probably would have been, I don't know, a struggling actor or writer somewhere because those were things I was always interested in, but was never very good at. <laughs> so um, that was Dr. Rayford um, at Suncoast High School. And so... Uh, I would, I would, I would list her as my second gravity assist. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> you know, teachers are so important to all of us. Definitely, uh, you know, and, and it's all about you know being receptive at the time that they're they're teaching us. So, so I'm delighted that occurred for you. Well, Lindsay, thanks <laughs> so much. It was really a joy talking to you about looking for life and your perspective on uh, on finding it out there. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>